I'm glad to be here. It is an honor and a privilege to be able to open the Word of God with you this morning. For those of y'all who don't know me, my name is Mitchell Moore, and I am a pastor here at Second. And Sandy is at a mission conference in Jackson, Mississippi. And uh, we are going to be jumping ahead in Deuteronomy. We're going to, you should have notes on the table before you. But because of the snow day, our kind of uh, schedule is thrown off a little bit. I had uh, the last snow day when we had to miss an amen. I had already been assigned this text. And Sandy came back and said, I'd love for you to teach on just warfare from Deuteronomy 20, uh, which he'll get to next week. And I said, yeah, I'm not really comfortable with just warfare and all that, all the history that goes into the thought from Augustine. Why don't you go do it? And besides, my topic is purge the sin from your midst. And if you're not there, then we're off to a good start. So um, just kidding. <laughs> yeah. He didn't laugh at me. Just kidding. Uh, he did. So that is our topic. We're going to be in Deuteronomy 21 uh, starting at verse 1, and we're going to work through chapter 22, verses uh, to verse 12 this morning. We're in the covenant stipulation section of Deuteronomy, and it is all about living life in the land when they get to the land. And this particular section has a theme that runs through it. It's a lot of verses, I know, but it has a theme that runs through it, and that theme is that of purging of getting rid of, of removing guilt and of removing sin from the midst of God's covenant community. But this isn't a theme unique to this chapter. The idea of purging is all through Deuteronomy. We first encounter it, and you heard Sandy speak on it in chapter 13, verse 5. And it is uh, repeated about 12 to 14 times, depending on the theme of purging you want to you count. So it's a theme throughout the book. It's not unique to this chapter, and we will pick up on that a little bit as we go through. But the idea of removing uh, unhealth from a community or removing sin or removing guilt from a team, it's not only an un, a, a familiar concept of Deuteronomy, but I think it's familiar to you guys as well. And I want to establish a little bit of continuity right out of the gate. If you're a University of Memphis basketball fan, they won Wednesday night. Hopefully they can keep winning uh, in and through the tournament. They lost last night? Man, let's just close in prayer. I'm horrible. That is unbelievable. They lost last night? Unreal. I was thinking of the Grizzlies the night before. I'm sorry. The Grizzlies beat my Spurs. I'm a huge Spurs fan. So anyway, so they lost last night. Hopefully they keep winning. If you're a Memphis basketball fan, you remember the 05 season, I think it was, when they had uh, Sean Banks on their team. Great player. But the coach realized that Sean Banks was poison for the team. And he had to get rid of Sean Banks. You remember this? And when they got rid of Sean Banks, they went on one of their largest winning streaks that they had been on as a basketball team. This idea of getting rid of what is unhealthy or what Bible will call sin or getting rid of guilt from among our teams, it, we understand that because there's a health that we're trying to achieve. There's a purpose and there's a mission. For the basketball team, it's to win a basketball game. So you get rid of that element, which is bringing unhealth to the whole organization. If you're a Tennessee football fan, then you know we wanted to purge the evil from among us. And when Lane Kiffin said goodbye, then nobody was waving goodbye with tears in their eyes. All right? Because we knew that guy is just poison. Okay? 
And we wanted to remove the unhealth from our program. Thankfully, he went as far away in our country as he could, Southern California, and he took his, uh, he took his uh, penalties with him. So hopefully the NCA will follow him. So we understand removing uh, the unhealth for the sake of purpose and mission uh, of an organization. Your body knows this instinctively. Your body knows that when a foreign substance enters your body, that is unhealthy, a parasite. If you've ever been uh, camping and you drank water that had bacteria in it, your body begins to reacting. This is unhealthy. This isn't supposed to be part. We've got to remove the unhealth from my mitts. And what do you get? Diarrhea. Because your body knows. Some of you all laughed. If that's ever happened to you, you know, it's not very funny. (laughs) It's not fun at all. But your body instinctively knows to get rid of the unhealth to get rid of that which throws you off of your purpose and your mission. If you uh, lead anyone in business, if you have a team, then you know that when you have somebody on your team that isn't pulling their weight or is bringing everybody else down or isn't uh, gifted in this certain place where they are, then you want to remove them and put them in a place that's more appropriate for them. It's It's just something that we have a familiar concept with, this idea of removing What is unhealthy? And in Scripture, God's Word is clear that His people should instinctively get rid of the sin and the guilt that is in their midst. All right? And we're going to read Deuteronomy 21 in the beginning of 22, and we're going to see how that applies to us. And I challenge every man in this room to be honest with yourself this morning. To take an honest evaluation of your heart and where you stand. We need, the church needs, a severe case of honesty. And God's Word gives us so much hope. So let's read together this long section, and then we'll pray for the Lord's mercy as we go into it. Beginning at verse 1 of chapter 21. If in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess, someone is found slain, lying in the open country, and it is not known who killed him, then your elders and your judges should come out. And they should measure the distance to the surrounding cities. And the elders of the city that is nearest to the slain man shall take a heifer that has never been worked and that has not pulled a yoke. And the elders of that city shall bring the heifer down in the valley with running water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come forward. For the Lord God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless him in the name of the Lord. And by their word, every dispute and every assault shall be settled. And all the elders of the city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. And they shall testify, our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it shed. Accept atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, And do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people, Israel, so that their blood guilt be atoned for. So you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. Verse 10. When you go out to war against your enemies and the Lord your God gives them into your hand and you take them captive and you see among the captives a beautiful woman and you desire to take her to be your wife and you bring her home to your house, she shall shave her head and pare her nails. <laughs> she shall pare her nails. Now, isn't that a phrase that's just completely foreign to us? <laughs> what does that mean to pare your nails? Anyway, uh, I think it means to cut them. Verse 13, And she shall take off the clothes in which she was captured and shall remain in your house and lament 
her father and her mother a full month. After that, you may go into the land and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. But if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants. But you shall not sell her for money, nor shall you treat her as a slave, since you have humiliated her. Verse 15. If a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him children, and if the first son belongs to the unloved, then on the day when he assigns his possessions as inheritance to his son, he may not treat the son of the loved as the firstborn in preference to the son of the unloved who is the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has. For he is the first fruits of his strength the right of his firstborn. Verse 18. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, This is our stubborn and rebellious son. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all shall hear and fear. Verse 22. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him on the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. 22 verse 1. You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to your brother. And if he does not live near you and you do not know who he is, you shall bring it home to your house and it shall stay with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall, then you shall restore it to him. And you shall do the same with his donkey or with his garment or with any lost thing from your brother's which he loses and you find. You may not ignore it. You shall not see your brother's donkey or ox falling down by the way and ignore them. You shall help him to lift them up again. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. If you come across a bird's nest in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs, and the mother is sitting on the young or the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall let the mother go. But the young you you may take for yourself, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long. When you build a new house, you shall make a parpet for your roof that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. You should not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, lest the whole yield be forfeited. The crop which you have sown, the yield of the vineyard. You shall not plow with an ox or a donkey together. You shall not wear cloth or wool or linen mixed together. You You shall make for yourselves, verse 12, you shall make for yourself tassels on the four corners of the garment with which you cover yourself. Man, this is God's word, and when we look at it, the point is not to remain the same. The point is to be changed by the Spirit of God. So I ask that you pray with me before we process and digest this word together, that the Spirit of God will make His word and His work effectual in our lives as men. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the design of your people. And we come to you together this morning, Lord, as men, honestly confessing that we 
have not allowed your word to form us and shape us, even this morning, as you call it to. We have not allowed your work to penetrate the core of our hearts. And we ask that this morning you would be pleased that through the power of your Holy Spirit that we would look at your word and not just be inspired, but truly be transformed. That we would be made to look like you. That we would walk out of here different men. That our communities would be marked with your grace and your mercy and your work as we seek to live faithfully and give you glory in all of life. Lord, we thank you that you are patient with your people. We thank you that you have provided for us. We thank you that before the throne of God above, we have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives to intercede for us. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. As we look at this passage, we're going to see the theme of guilt uh, uh, see, the, see the theme of purging running all the way through the chapter. We're going to see uh, a few things. We're going to see that we're, we're supposed to purge the guilt from us, we're going to, uh, from among our corporate living, our purge the inhumanity, the partiality, the evil, the curse, and our syncretism. But we're going to start with purging the guilt from, the, from our community, our corporate living, because that's where the Bible starts. The first thing that you see on your point there, point A, is that the sin of one person, the sin of one is everybody's business. It's everyone. Now, this is completely counter to our culture, isn't it? Because we're people who say, well, what I look at on the computer when nobody's looking, that doesn't hurt anybody. You know, my, well, my subtle struggle, you know, maybe it's an addiction with pornography. That's not, that doesn't hurt anybody. The way that I look at women in this community, I look at women that I work with and I undress them, and that doesn't hurt anybody. That's just my sin, you know? (laughs) When I'm angry with my brother in my heart, that doesn't really hurt anybody. I'm not not really going to act out on that anger, that sin in my heart. It's just not, you know, no, no. That's, That's an individualistic Western approach to life and not a biblical corporate approach to life. The sin of one affects everybody, and we see it in this passage where they find a dead man. Nobody knows who killed this man. In the midst of God's people and in the land, there's to be no murder. It's one of the Ten Commandments. All the way back to uh, the covenant with Noah, we know that you, you you don't take a life among God's people. It's not appropriate. But we don't know who did this. We don't know who committed the sin of this murder. And what we, what we see is a massive movement of the leaders, the civic leaders of God's people, the judges, the priests. They come together from all the towns around. They found one person dead. There's one casualty. One casualty. And all of the people of God are moved by this. And they're moved to act on it. That doesn't make any sense to us, doesn't it? Because we read about casualties all the time in our papers. All the time. We're not mobilized to do something about this. This is not a call for the elders of our church to, to go out and the pastors to go out and figure out it's, so who did this and, and what's behind it. We've got a person. No. But biblically, the sin of that one person, even if you don't know who it is, it affects everybody. And this isn't unique to this passage. 
It's just this, it, if you read Deuteronomy, I know Sandy's talked about it. I listen to his uh, lectures on, on podcasts when I work out. And if you know me, I don't work out that much, so I'm a little behind um, in keeping up with him. Um, anyway, uh, we see Deuteronomy is the hermeneutical key for all the historical books. So if you want to know when you're reading the historical books, beginning with Joshua, like, well, what's the problem going on here? Then you can look back at Deuteronomy and you can see, oh, here's the problem. They were explicitly told not to do this and they're ignoring that reality and they're not uh, uh, taking advantage of the implementation of the blessings of the covenant by obedience. And so they're, being, they're, they're experiencing a curse. And this is a reality portrayed early, early in the land. When Joshua leads the people in the land, it doesn't take long until they get to Ai. It's chapter 7. And when they go to Ai, they lose. Do you remember why they lost? Well, they had conquered Jericho. They dominated that place, and all they did was blow trumpets and sing songs. What happened in Ai? Why was the Israelite army routed? Well, there was a man named Achan. Just one guy. Just one guy. The whole nation suffered. Achan. And he did what he wasn't supposed to do, and he took some of the booty. And You can look at Joshua 7. And when Joshua's confronting them, he says this, uh, he, he, Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel. Give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua this, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. And this is what I did. One man, Achan, just did this one small sin and it affected the whole, all, everybody. This is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted to them. I coveted them, and I took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth. He hid them under the earth in his tent. And Joshua sent elders and found them. And you look at that, you're like, man, what happened there? Well, that's a simple paradigm lived out that Deuteronomy explicitly says all the way through the book, that the sin of one person infects the entire people of God because we're a community. We are the people of God. And so when you covet in your heart and then you act on that in stealing in certain ways, guess what? It affects everybody. It's everyone's business. You think this is just an Old Testament principle? Then go back to Sandy's lecture a couple of weeks ago when he was talking about church discipline. Go to 1 Corinthians 5 where Paul uses this, where there was a man who just coveted a woman in his heart and that covenant, just like Achan, led to adultery. And it was a disgusting form of adultery. And guess what Paul says to deal with, how to deal with it? Purge the evil man from your midst. This is a strong biblical call for God's people, particularly the leaders and the men's of God's church, to take serious our sin, our rebellion, our dishonesty, our coveting, our false worship, our adultery. Our theft. The sin of one is everybody's business. And we've got to be honest with that because everybody in this room is like Aiken. We've all got stuff buried in the ground on the inside of our tents that nobody knows about. And we don't think it's affecting anybody. So we keep it there. Sometimes we go back and visit, we dig it up, and we, we think we can control our sin. No. It affects people. But we've got to go on because there's a whole lot of material. The sin of one 
needs atonement for all. Look what the elders do. The elders of that city, they bring out a heifer. And they bring it down into a valley with running water. It's a heifer that hasn't been used. It's a pure heifer. It's a young heifer. And in line with prescription from Exodus, they slice this heifer right by the neck for a sacrificial offering because the sin of that one person needs to be atoned for. And I want you to notice something because we're going to unpack this unbelievable reality together. Where did they take this heifer? Do you see that in your passage? They take it down to a stream, to a valley with a river with running water. What do you think the purpose of that is? Yeah, that's exactly right. Because when they make atonement for this sin, when they make the sacrifice, Kippur is the the word for atonement here, when they slice the heifer's neck, and when the blood of that heifer pays for the sin and the rebellion of that one person that no one knows about, no one knows who he is, you know what happens to the sacrifice, the blood? It's washed away. Because when God's people receive atonement, it washes away the guilt. And it's in line, if you look at, I love one of my favorite verses, when it comes to God's uh, redeeming work and the effects for us, and this is why we're free to be honest with our sin, we'll get more to this in a minute, is is from Micah chapter 7, verses 18 through 20, particularly 19. Uh, because Micah, the prophet, says this, Who is a God like you? He's finishing up his, his book. Who that pardons iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? How do, He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love, his covenant love for his people. Listen to this, men. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Where does water run to? Water runs. Do you follow the Mississippi River down to the Gulf of Mexico? If we went out there, if we did this in Memphis, if we had sin that we needed to deal with, an individual sin that was messing with people, we took a heifer if we still needed the sacrificial stipulations that they had in this day. We took it and we, the blood was washed and the sin was atoned for. That blood would go down to the Gulf of Mexico and that would go from the Gulf of Mexico and disperse out. Hey, where'd the blood go? Where'd the sin go? Where'd the atonement go? It's gone. It's hurled into the depths of the sea. It is washed away. And there is need for atonement for all of people, for all. The sin of one needs atonement for all. And when it happens, it's washed away completely. It's gone forever. And that gives you as men the freedom to be honest with your brokenness. It gives you freedom to be honest with your sins. It gives us freedom to be in a community and to look at someone and say, I'm sorry. I messed up. I made a poor decision. I made a stupid leadership mistake. My sin hurt you, and I'm sorry. And it gives the other person, the the other man, the opportunity to to forgive. It helps us to have a gospel-centered community where it's not based on our performance because we can operate on the same level of neediness. All of us need the atonement of the heifer because all of us, like Achan, have sin that is buried in our tents. All of us need God's atoning work. The sin of one needs atonement for all. But the next point is that the sin of one is atoned in the context of the relationship. Look at these words. Accept atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed. Whom you have redeemed. Israel's relationship did not begin at Sinai. When God was given the commands to His people, 
that they should live holy lives, and that they should have no sin among them. The purpose was the restoration of the humanity. Their purpose was not for God's people to earn God's favor. It was never that case. God gave the commandments to Israel in the context of a relationship. He says it in chapter 20 of Exodus, verse 1. He says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. I have redeemed you. You are mine. You are my son. Now, here are some laws for you. It's in the context of a, uh, of a relationship. We see it in Deuteronomy 7, verse 8, where it writes, because, But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He has sworn to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand, redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. This idea in the Old Testament of obedience never starts with man's effort, but always starts with God's effort. And God's effort is one of redemption. God's effort is one of salvation. It's in the context of a relationship. And you've got to see this last point. The atonement of sin is what is right in the sight of the Lord. So you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right. In the sight of the Lord. So you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. And what is right in the sight of the Lord? The atonement of sin. That is what's right in the sight of the Lord. It is the fact that your rebellion against a holy God deserves death. And atonement, the death of this heifer, stands in the place, in this case, of the guilty man who murdered and I just want to push on something real quick because I know guys, I am a guy, I work with guys, particularly young men in this room. Would you stop being like Gaddafi? Would you? I mean, this dude is holed up and his son is telling the international press, there's no rebellion here. Everything's fine. I'm not losing control. Refugees are fleeing his country hundreds of thousands at a time. And his son's coming on, on the air and taking interviews saying, oh, we've got everything under control. There's no rebellion here. <laughs> Excuse me. His, his last days are being counted. And we're going to see another shift of power in the Middle East. And this man's in complete denial. Don't be like this guy. Okay? Just be honest with your rebellion. Be honest with your sin. Be honest with your need for God's atoning work. You're free to that. It's part of being human. We're sinners. Our first parents were Adam. You know, and, and here's, here's the reality of community. I, we have a young men's Bible study. We meet every uh, other Wednesday. Uh, and we talked through this. And we, and we looked at Judas uh, last week. And we talked about a guy named John Wayne Gacy. You remember John Wayne Gacy? As an illustration. John Wayne Gacy uh, was a serial killer. He died in 1994. He was called the Killer Clown. He was, his, his name was Pogo the Clown. And John Wayne Gacy did civic uh, charities and all kinds of clown routines. The community loved him. But when he did his routines, he would target little boys. And he would prey on them. And while the community thought everything was great in John Wayne Gacy's life, he would take little boys and he would rape them and then he would kill them. And when they finally figured out who he was, John Wayne Gacy had over 20 bodies of little boys buried under the floorboards of his house. Not to mention the the bodies that were buried other places. That is tragic. 
that is evil at its core. But here's the reality, men. You might not have little boys that are dead buried under your house, but you got something under your floorboards. You know what God's work frees us to do? It frees us to be honest. It frees us to be real. Because you know what you're hiding keeps you captive. You're a slave to your greed. You're a slave to your adultery. You're a slave to your partiality and your judgment. You're a slave. And God's work says, be free. Be honest. Because the atoning sacrifice of God pays for our sin and washes it. He hurls it into the depth of the sea. There's a difference between uh, penitence and repentance, isn't there? So penitence is you trying to atone for your own sin. Penitence is you saying, well, I've done these uh, unethical things in my vocation, or I treated my neighbor in this horrible way, or I treated my neighbor's wife in this horrible way, or I committed this certain sin when I was around, and no one was around, I was by myself. And so I'm going to go to amen, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, maybe I'm going to mentor somebody, I'm going to go to church, and I'm going to do, do these good things, and hopefully the scale of God's justice will be balanced out by my good deeds and my bad deeds. And so we, we operate in a culture that is uh, more penitential than it is repentant, marked. And so we actually believe the cultural lie that our moralism can make God happy. That our good works can counteract our, our evil and our sin. No! It's not about penitence. It's about repentance. Be honest and turn from your sin, men. I tell you, I work with young adults, and they need to see men who are honest with their sin. Men who say they're sorry. Men who understand that Christ's work is bigger than their sin. I need models. I need examples. I need men who will look at their sin and say, enough! I'm sorry for screaming. Maybe next time I'll do it. I'll I'll take my mic off. I need you. Please be honest. But let's keep going. I'm sorry. I mean, step back a little bit. A lot of the reviews of me sharing, people say, I know you were just passionate, but you seemed really angry. Um, I'm not angry. Okay, and I think that I think when people say that I'm angry, it's because I'm moving my hands a lot, and maybe they're angry gestures, and and so I apologize. I'm I'm just longing for you to hear me and to hear God's word. And so if that is if that is translated as anger, please step back from that. But we've got to go on. That's just our first point. We're going to make it through. Secondly, we're going to purge. The inhumanity. I know you're used to that, okay? I know Sandy does it every week, so let's just keep going in this tradition that we always do. We must purge the inhumanity from our corporate living. And so what we see here is a a, a requirement for God's people that when they take captives... Now, this wouldn't be a captive. You're going you're to understand the warfare he's talking about is warfare that happens after they've conquered the land. This is a, a, a casualty of skipping chapter 20. Uh, but after they've conquered the land, they take a woman captive. And we're going to see in this passage three quick things that captives have dignity in our corporate living. That captives have dignity. Now, in most cultures in the ancient Near East... That when you took captives, they didn't have dignity. They immediately became your slaves. But God's people are different. We experience forgiveness. We experience atonement. 
And because we experience God's grace, we have a community that is different from the worlds around them. And so you can look at the laws of Hanbury. You can look at the Hittite law codes. You can look at the, at the uh, tablets of Akala, which is the Babylonian, the Assyrian tablets of law. And you see that when they take captives, those captives didn't have dignity. But among God's people, the most marginalized, the captives, they have dignity. And it's seen explicitly in how it's treated women. Women have dignity in their corporate living. Well, you can see they have captivity because they have, the captives have dignity because they're not immediately put to, to she's not immediately put to, uh, into slavery. She's not immediately an object. We're going to get to that more in a second. But women have dignity in the corporate living of God's people. Women have dignity. Look what she's able to do. She can shave her head, take off her clothes, and do what? Lament for the loss of the men that she, she used to belong to, the fathers and brothers that used to fight. What kind of community gives those kind of rights to its captives and to the women? Treat women with dignity, allowing her to have weeks for mourning and lamenting, to shave her head and change her garments, to signify a new position and a new standing, and so much so that if this man has set his heart upon her, and then after her period of lamenting, he's no longer, no longer drawn to her, no longer attracted to her. She's able to go free. She doesn't become his slave. She isn't added to his harem. She isn't his servant. She's free. Women have dignity in the corporate people of God because we are a community that understands that we were all captives, right? We're all captive to our sin. Let's look at some of the captives that are among us right now. There's people who are captive to addictions. There's people here that to cope with your vocation, you just drink two or three glasses a day. And on the weekends, you party hard. But you, you're not a slave to that, are you? You're not captive to it. You have to do it at least five times a week and once on the weekend. But you're not a slave to that, are you? Yeah, you are. It's called alcoholism. We have alcoholics that are captive in here. We have people who are addicted to sexual addiction. We have people who are addicted to a gambling in this room. We have captives among us, but captives among the people of God have dignity. And so do women. Okay? Women, but we're called to be free. We're going to get to this in a second. We're called to be free. Women have capity. They are not objects for our enjoyment. They are image of, image of God. This is the last point. People have dignity in our corporate living. You shall not sell her for money and treat her as a slave. It goes back to Genesis 1, 27, where God created man in his image. Male and female, he created them in his image. They are, when we come to the people of God, we're not looking for a contact, a business contact. We're dealing with people. When we look at a woman, she's not an object for our enjoyment, is she? No, she's the image of God. She's not there for our pleasure. She's there for God's glory, and we treat her as such. When we come to we're not looking for a connection. Try to advance business. Try to look better at the club. I don't come to this church so I have better business connections. That's treating people as an object. That's using people. You don't do that among the people of God. You don't come to a certain church, or you're not part of a community because you're looking for some sort of social capital. I understand our culture. I do. And relationships are capital. Who you know makes you look better. And who you don't associate with makes you look better. Because if you're associating with the wrong people, 
then that's going to make you look bad. We don't use people that way. Because among God's people, we've been bought with the blood of Christ. Then we don't, the captives and women and all people are treated with dignity. They're not objects for our enjoyment. We are distinct people. We are a set-apart people. And you may go to another organization that's not the people of God. You may go to another club where you can blackball people because you don't like them. But if you do that to a Christian, if you're blackballing somebody from a club that's your brother in Christ and you're not talking to them intentionally, guess what? You don't understand the gospel because God's people do not show partiality in those ways. God's people do not in no way, shape, or form Act like the rest of the world. The rest of the world, if you don't perform well, you're fired. The rest of the world, if you don't, if you don't act up to a certain measure or, or know the right people, then you're not with the in crowd. God's people, everybody has dignity. We don't treat people just as vehicles for our own self-fulfillment, our own pleasure, and our own purposes. We treat them for God's glory. And it leads to the next point, that we must purge the partiality from our corporate living. Okay? And he does this, he, the, Moses talks about this uh, in talking about what happens if, if a man is married to two women. You know, God forbid, I'm married to one woman that I love very much. And I don't want to be married to, to two women. And uh, when it comes to polygamy in the Old Testament, it's never sanctioned, all right? And if a man is married to two women, isn't a prescription for people to marry more than one woman. Okay? It's, it's just dealing with the reality of sin in the world. Okay, and Genesis 2 is very clear that the marriage is designed for one man. It's designed for one woman to be in relationship together. But if there is someone that has two wives and he doesn't love the first life, we think of Rachel and Leah with Jacob from Genesis 29, uh, then he doesn't treat the first son of the woman he doesn't like uh, in a negative way. Because loving someone more does not mean treating them better than others. Not among God's people. And loving someone less does not mean stripping their rights from them. You can see this in this section. It it ends that way. Uh, But if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her... Oh, sorry, wrong wrong section. uh, Verse 17. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has. For he is the first fruits of his strength, the right of his firstborn. You don't strip their rights from them just because you don't like them. And so the principles that we glean from this section is that there's no partiality among the people of God. Among God's people, there's no partiality because we're not the same as the rest of the world. Do you see this? We're different. We're not like the Hittites. We're not like the Canaanites in the land we're going. We're not like the Assyrians who are going to come capture us. We're not like the Babylonians. We're not like those that haven't been bought by the blood of Jesus. We are different. We've experienced God's grace, and so there's no partiality among us. We don't separate ourselves based on socioeconomic distinctions. We don't base ourselves based on race. We don't, we don't separate ourselves based on race or by job or by economic status. Because we're united by the work of God. In the Old Testament, the work of God was redemption from Egypt. For us, the work of God, the climax of redemption, is Jesus Christ's life, His death, His resurrection. And if you have faith in Jesus, there is no Jew, there is no Greek, there is no barbarian, there is no Scythian, there is no slave, there is no free. I mean, we're all free in Christ. There's no rich, there's no poor. We're one. There's no one, there's no black, there's no white. We are one. There is no Alabama fan, there is no UT fan. 
Okay, I can walk in and hear a joke about Alabama's basketball team being better than Tennessee's, and I, I'm not going to hit the guy in the face. You know why? Because he's my brother in Christ. I went to the Tennessee Bowl game, and I promise you, when they were leaving that game, people were throwing beer cans at North Carolina fans. They were hurling because North Carolina stole the game from Tennessee if you didn't watch it. Yeah. It wasn't real funny when we were there. I mean, I had to, I took my daughter, I had to cover her ears, you know. But what happens in the world, you know, people of God, if your loyalty is Tennessee, then everyone who's not a Tennessee fan is your enemy. And they were throwing beer cans and cussing and yelling at fans of North Carolina? Really? That's what you go to? What about, there's teenage boys running around with a football and you're gonna get upset? And you're going to cuss out somebody you don't know and try to hurt them because your your little group of boys lost? Come on. Not among the people of God. It doesn't matter the color of your college football team or basketball team. It matters the color of your atonement, and it needs to be blood red from the blood of Jesus because there's no partiality in our corporate living. And here's the part I know you all want to get to because it's about the rebellious son. Okay? Already on the front row. All right, let's get to it. Let's look at my son's trouble and give me some tools so I can whip him into shape. Okay? Starting at verse 18. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey the voice of his father and mother, though they discipline him, will uh, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the city and where he lives, and they shall, you know, basically put him on trial and stone him. See, evil... We get from this evil. He says, purge the evil from yours. Evil is rebellion against a God-given authority. All right? So we all can identify. We're all evil. And what they, they were supposed to do is take their child, the mother and the father, not just the dad. <laughs> dad had to actually talk his wife into this. Come on, let's take him to the elders of the city. Let's punish this kid. He's rebellious. He's a drunkard. He's a glutton. He's not respectful to our authority. That's evil. And you can imagine the threats that would come of this, right? If a boy's, not, a boy's acting up in, in the house, the father just looks at the mom and says, is it time to take him? You know, is it time to take him? And the wife's like, no, no, not yet. And they start arguing over it. And the boy's like, all right, I'm sorry. You know, we can see how it plays out. But there is actually a stipulation that when the child is rebelling against the authority of the father, then they're taken to the gates of the city. Evil is a burden for all of those who are in the authority because it is the elders. It is the men of the land who deal with the rebellion of the youth. I'm just, just quick side note. Do you guys care about the rebellion of the youth in our community? Do you? Because here... The men, the elders of the community, they care deeply. And they're involved even in people's lives of parenting on a very specific level. But it's a burden for all those in authority. We see his mother and his father shall take them, take him to the elders of this city. And we don't have time to look at all of these verses, but if you look at Proverbs 19.18, it says the, the point of your discipline is not to kill your son. You don't want that. He says, discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. And it's a challenge to the men of the community. When you're mad at your son, or you're mad at your wife, uh, child, you don't, just want to, you don't want to kill them. You want to shape them. You want to discipline them as a father disciplines his son. And you want to love them and shape them and help them to be all that God created them to be. The point is not to put them to death. 
And you want to discipline. This one's important. Proverbs 13 says, clearly, if you spare the rod, then you hate your son. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Discipline's a good thing. Discipline is something that they'll look back and thank you for. If you have a child and you don't have a strategy for discipline, you need to get one. Period. If you've got a wild and rebellious son, if, you're a, if, you're, if you have a, a son in here that's making you hang your head and you're embarrassed by that, guess what? This passage is looking at you. Not your son. It doesn't look at your son. Man, that's just a rebellious kid. It looks at the men of the community and says, it's your job to shape these men. It's your job to own this. I think of Billy Ray Cyrus. You know you, Miley Cyrus? You know who she is? She's the pop sensation. uh, I'm not even going to start singing one of her songs because it will be stuck in all of our heads forever. But you remember it was about four or five years ago that she started uh, with Disney. And Billy Ray Cyrus realized that his daughter was a cash cow. He could make all kinds of money. And he effectively, he started pimping her out. All the pop songs possible. All the TV shows possible. And on her 18th birthday, he did an interview. Or after her 18th birthday. Because for her 18th birthday, you know how she celebrated? She made a video showing her hitting bongs. Just, just doing drugs. If you don't know what a bong is, marijuana, it's, uh, it's a drug. If you don't know what it is, then good. You don't need to. But it showed her hitting a bong. And he was ashamed. And in an interview, he said this. He said, I did it all wrong. People were telling me that I cared too much about being my daughter's friend. And now I have no control over her. Her actions are out of my hand. His wife has left him because he wasn't a man. And he saw the, the, the cultural trappings that came with the popular daughter. He saw the cultural trappings that came with money. He saw the cultural trappings of success. You know, his one song that made it big, Achy Breaky Heart, that one song, he saw more through his daughter. He began living vicariously through his kids, and he threw everything else to the wind. And now he sits alone in his house because his wife left him because she wants to be married to a man who will run their family because their daughter's running crazy. It is our job to discipline our kids in a way that gives God glory, in a way that builds character, not in a way that provokes them. If it's clear, Paul's clear a couple of times, Ephesians 6, uh, Colossians 4. We don't provoke our kids, but we embody God's heart towards us. And we shape them into the men and the women that God's called them to be. We feed them spiritually. We lead them spiritually. When was the last time you led your family in a devotional? When was the last time you worked with your son and your daughter to teach them scripture and to show them God's heart? When was the last time that your son got out of line that you lovingly explained to him, Son, this isn't what a man does. That's not how a man acts. Men, we've got, to be, we've got to be men who purge this sort of evil and rebellion against authority out of our midst. And lastly, we see in this section that evil is dealt with by authority. It leads to a healthy fear. Because when people see God's discipline, when people, I mean, we see it in Deuteronomy 13, 11, 17, 13, uh, 17, 13, 19, 20. We see that God's work of love and discipline of his people it actually leads to a healthy fear, all right, a healthy fear. But next we see we must purge the curse from our corporate living. 
And this is one of the most powerful passages of, of, that we're going to look at. You see, the curse is the wage of rebellion. If a man's committed a crime punishable by death, he, uh, you shall put him to death. Because all of our sins and our actions lead to death. The, the wages of sin is death, is what Paul says in Romans six twenty three, And that's a curse. And then when someone is punishable a crime of death and you hang him on a tree, when he takes that shame, take him down by the night before the night and bury him, put him underground, all right? Because the curse defiles the land and the curse needs to be removed from the land. The curse of God is a casualty of our sin and rebellion. It's a casualty of not honoring God's law. It's a casualty of being in a relationship with God, being redeemed by God as the Israelites were and going into the land that God provides and not living a way that God had designed us to live. And you see the ultimate curse in Deuteronomy 28 and all the curse stipulations that the ultimate curse is exile. It's removal of the land. And that in itself is a discipline of a loving father that his people might be everything that he created them to be. All right? That the curse defiles the land and the curse needs to be removed by the land. But if you look in the gospel, we look in the New Testament, we see this. Everybody in here deserves the curse of God. Everybody in here deserves the shame of being hung on a tree. Everybody in here has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But what Paul says in Galatians, when he uses this verse, needs to be something that shapes us and forms us. He writes, For all who rely on the works of the law, all who rely on those for a right standing of God, they're under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. And to do them, anybody here done all things in the book of the law? No. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. No one's made right before God by the law. The righteous shall live by faith, says Paul, verse 12. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So we've got to remove, purge the evil from our midst. Purge the curse from our midst. Why? Listen to this. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Men, the purpose of removing the curse, the purpose of removing the guilt, of purging the evil is so that we can be a healthy organism. So that God's purposes and His mission can go through His people. That is why it's essential to purge the curse from our corporate living. That is why it's essential, essential that you look to Jesus in faith. You cannot be a man who makes yourself right before God on your own works and on your own actions. You cannot be a man who is made holy just by your own self-resolve. You cannot be a man who obeys every law. It will crush you. By faith, we look to the man who obeyed every law, Jesus Christ. And by faith, we look to the man who was cursed for us, Jesus Christ. And by faith, we look to the man who went into exile for us and cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? By faith, we look to the man who was buried in the grave, who went underground where we hide our sins. He took our sins. And by faith, we look to the man who rose victoriously over those sins. His name is Jesus Christ. And by faith, that is how we purge the evil from our midst. By faith, that is how we purge the guilt from our midst. And by faith, that is how we purge the curse from our corporate living. Do you hear me, men? To be a man, we look to the true man. His name is Jesus Christ. That is how I, when I screw up, can look at my brother and say, I'm sorry. And I can ask for his forgiveness. You know why? Because I know I'm forgiven by God. 
That is why the people of God are different. That is why we look different, smell different, taste different, love different. That's why people in your country clubs look at you differently. It's something different about that guy. They're not shaped by this culture. They're shaped by something else. Jesus the King, the true man. That is why people in your vocations, in your offices, they say those men are different. They, let, they use their money in a different way. They're not fighting and stepping on people to get ahead. What's different with them? We look to the true man, Jesus Christ, who removed the guilt from us, who removed the evil from us, who removed the curse from us and has given us life. That's why we're a different people. And we see in this last section, and I want to talk about the compartments we live with, uh, but maybe I'll get to those. We must purge the syncretism from our corporate living. This is the last part because he just goes through a litany of verses in 12. We, you know what syncretism is? Syncretism is an attempt, this is from, uh, from Webster's, it's an attempt to reconcile contrary beliefs often while melding practices of various schools of thought. The term means combining, uh, uh, so it's, it's a co- combining worldviews. To, to live syncretistically is to live in a way that, that is, uh, I'm going to say I'm a Christian, but I'm going to actually incorporate all the priorities of the world and my leadership and the priorities of the world and how I spend my money, the priorities of the culture, and how I entertain myself, the priorities of the culture, and how I spend time alone. But I'm really a Christian. That's syncretism. You can't mix loyalties. Jesus put it this way. You can't serve both God and money. And this is really clear in, the, in, the, the, in this section that we've got to purge. Because we're different, we have faith in God and we have atonement that's removed our guilt, removed the curse, removed the evil. We must purge the syncretism from our corporate living because it's syncretistic to love ourselves more than our neighbors. <laughs> Look at the length we're supposed to go to if we just see a wandering ox. It says twice, don't ignore it. Something of your brother's has gone astray. You love him. You go to the same length that you would yourself if you're looking for your own ox. You see your brother in need, you love him. This comes from Leviticus 19.18. It's built on Exodus 23, verses 4 through 5. We see it in uh, Jesus talking about Matthew 5, and most famously in Luke 10, right? The parable of the good semester. It's syncretistic to love ourselves more than we love our neighbors. That's what your culture does. Your culture says that you're the center of the universe. Your Jesus says that he's the center of the universe. Men who are men purge the syncretism. But it's also syncretism to, to lose gender distinctiveness. So if any of you are tempted to go to the bathroom and put on your dress before you go to work, that's eh, just not appropriate. All right? It's syncretistic to not value life. You shall not take the mother with the young. It goes back to the covenant God made with Noah. It's syncretism to not value life because our culture doesn't value life. Our culture values self-promotion. God's people values life. It's syncretistic to grow like the kingdoms grow around you. If you really think that God's people need to have the same strategies for growth that our culture has, we can learn from them and we can teach them and shape them. Oh, man. God's design for power is the Holy Spirit. It's not your own self-resolve. It's not the new leadership tactic. God's design for power is the Holy Spirit. God's design for growth is dependence and His mercy and His grace. And lastly, it's syncretistic to forget your set-apartness. So this last section we see that the culture, they love themselves more than they love other people, but not God's people. Not God's people. 
We love others more than we love ourselves. And I'll bring up education like I did in the sermon the other day. Are we people, are we men who care as much about the education of the other brothers and sisters we have in Christ in this city as we do about ourselves? We go to great extents to have the best education possible for ourselves and for our kids. Do we love our neighbors in the same way? Because we don't have donkeys and cows running around our city that we're just ignoring. We've got human lives that are lost and wandering. And it is God's people's charge to love our neighbor more than we love ourselves. As with, do we care? Because the culture loves themselves more than, more than they love others. God's people don't. The culture does not value life. God's people do. So when we see the atrocity of abortion, we fight it. When we see policies that are to take life away, we fight them. The culture does not value life. God's people do. The culture mixes loyalties. The culture says, yeah, you can serve God in money. God's people says, no, you can't. The culture says, you can serve God in yourself. God's word says, no, you can't. The culture says, yeah, you can be a slave to your vocation, a workaholic. You can do that. That's what the culture says. God's word says, no, you can't. Have no other gods before me. God's people are different because we're recipients of God's grace. The culture uh, also says that, um, that it's okay to, to, to blend in and to be like everybody else. But we see here it's syncretistic to forget your set-apartness. The tassels that were designed, we see from Numbers 15, designed to hang from our garments, from the, they're to remind God's people of God's law. That they're, they, because they've been redeemed, they're to live differently. Men, well, let's look at the last verse here on your handout from First Peter. Peter says, as obedient children, you, if you've been born by God, you're his child. If you've been born again, it's not by your own effort. I don't know any baby that ever came out of the womb and gave himself credit for being born. You're born by faith. It's all by God's work. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, be holy, be set apart in all your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Men, we must realize that our guilt has been purged from us so that we need to live in humanity. That our partiality has been purged, that the evil has been purged, that the curse has been purged by Jesus Christ. And by faith, we have before the throne of God above one who makes a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, so that we can live true humanity in a world of people who are being robbed of their dignity. Men, I appeal to your greatness. I appeal to your greatness as men. Be honest with your sin. Be honest with your brokenness. Be honest with the work of God. And let's be men who take seriously the health of the organism that is the church, the health of the purpose and the mission that is God's people to bring a blessing to the nations, to give God glory in all of life. Let's be a people who take uh, the health of our community as serious as we do our sports teams, as serious as we do our finances, as serious as we look at our funds and say, this one's got to go. It's poisoning my whole portfolio. We need to look at our sin and look at our lives and say, this has got to go because it's poisoning my whole life. It's poisoning and it affects everybody. Men, join me. Join me in living for God's glory in all of life because when we get before the throne of God and when we get to heaven, we will never look back. We will never look back and say, man, I just took giving God glory too seriously. But we will look back and go, man, I was so selfish. Why didn't I just die? God to have more glory. 
Maybe one day, maybe one day, we'll look back. People will look back at this period of history and say, those men were different, and the world is different because of it. Let's pray. Father, we need your grace and your mercy. We're so grateful that you have taken the guilt from our lives, that you've taken our curse, the curse. You've taken the evil that we might be a people who can purge the inhumanity from our life, purge the syncretism from our life, and purge the partiality from our living. Lord, would you help us to be men who respond faithfully to your word and your work? Thank you for your word, and I pray that your spirit will make it effectual in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. All God's men said...